0: Well, along with Eddie, I want to say good morning, church. Good morning. How are you? I love to be in the chapel, and I know we have different opinions about that, but uh, I really love it in here. Ted mentioned one reason, is just we can hear each other singing, and that's a, a great source of encouragement uh, to me, and I, I love that. It's more intimate, and uh, if you're a public speaker, if you've been in front of people, you know that you draw energy from the audience or you lose energy to the audience. And when we're closer together, uh, when we're closer together, it's, it, there's just a lot more energy for me. So it, you being in here helps me a lot. It just uh, is really encouraging to me. And then uh, another reason that it's good to be in here is that it's a lot cheaper to heat this room. <laughs> and being a Baptist pastor and caring about the offerings, it's just a whole lot easier to heat this room than it is to heat the Mammoth Sanctuary. I really have thought, this is confession, I've really thought about announcing when cold days we just won't be in the sanctuary because it's hard to heat that place. But anyhow, I appreciate the opportunity to worship in the chapel, and it's kind of good to be reminded that we can worship God anywhere when two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in the midst. So I'm glad to be in here with you today. Um, Joyce and I raised three sons. Our first son's name is Nathaniel Lee. Our second son is Roger Aaron, and the third one is Adam Robert. And uh, it's great to raise boys. I grew up with brothers. We raised three sons. I've never raised girls, so sorry, I just can't speak to that. But if you raise sons, sooner or later, you're going to get a call from either the principal or the teacher. For us, it started with our first son, Nathan. Nathan. And it started in his uh, first few weeks of school in kindergarten. If you've raised boys, you understand. And she called to inform us that uh, she was having behavioral problems with Nathan. And I said, he's my child, he's a great kid, this could not be possible. What's wrong with you? No, that's not what I said. That's what some parents say, though. They can't believe their little darling would get in trouble at school. Anyhow, we talked on the phone, and it seems the problem was that Nathan wouldn't obey her. She would ask him to do something. He might do it. He might not. It was an obedience issue. And she said to me, she said, Mr. Hasper, um, I talked to him about the fact he has to obey me. And what he said to me was, no, I don't have to obey you. You're not the boss of me. My dad is the boss of me. Now, I was very gratified to learn that at five years of age, he knew who the boss was. (laughs) That was questionable, but uh, I was glad that he could say that. And uh, we had a conversation then. Some would call it a come-to-Jesus meeting, but uh, after the phone call, of course, he had to come home, and he did. And uh, we sat down one day and had a a heart-to-heart, man-to-man discussion. And I said, Nate, uh, you're at school now, and you have to obey your teacher. And we talked about that, and I said, you know, I'm glad you think I'm the boss of you, and I am. But now I'm bossing you to tell you when you're at school, she's the boss of you. And he began to learn that painful lesson about authority. Now, I'm your pastor, and so I'm the boss of you, right? When I preach on Sundays and we lift up the Word of God, you go out and do what I ask you to do because you've given me the authority as pastor to be the boss of you in spiritual matters and other ways. (laughs) Well, let's try this. Your physician is the boss of you, right? When you go see your physician and she says to you, you know what, uh, sir, your diet is really bad and you need to change your diet. And uh, you told me you never exercise and you need to start exercising. And, uh, by the way, here are some pills to take for this ailment you have. When your physician says that, she's the boss of you, right? Uh, Well, maybe your plumber's the boss of you. When your plumber says to you, don't put onion skins in the garbage disposal or you'll keep calling me because the pipes are going to clog up, and don't put those dirty diapers down the toilet or you're going to keep calling me, Um, is the plumber the boss of you? We can go one more. What about the policeman who pulls you over because you're driving too fast? Uh, is then the policeman the boss of you? This morning, I really don't have a lot to say except to ask you a question. Who's the boss of you? Now, Joyce told me to tell you. She's the boss of me. So just <laughs> as you're wondering how I answer the question, uh, and it was Valentine's Day when she told me this, so I said, yes, ma'am. Is that right? That was a lie. Okay. Which one was lying? Me when I agreed? or uh... Anyhow, I do want to ask you, who's the boss of you? Now, we're beginning a new series. Uh, you're prepared to live a no-regrets life, right? Well, I see three, three people listen to that six-week series. We could just do it over again until you've got it. Um, we're done with that series. And we're beginning a new series, and I'm calling it Looking Up in a Down Time looking up in a down time. And each Sunday, from now to Easter, I'm going to be talking to you about one of the miracles of Jesus. I always like it this season to preach from the Gospels as we come up to Easter. And as I prayed and thought about what to talk about, I decided the most difficult thing for me to do would be to preach from the Gospels about the miracles of Jesus, and so that's what I'm going to do. And I've had a lot of fun studying this particular miracle. Each Sunday, we'll take a different miracle from a different Gospel, so we'll cover all four Gospels, and uh, I'll explain that later. And I'm looking forward to this. I encourage you to, to to pray with me now as we tackle the miracles. The question does come up, and if you have a, if you like to follow along and see where we're going, there are these inserts in your bulletin that you can look at that. But the question uh, does come up, and I ask it here: uh, Are the miracles true? And let's just start with that. We're going to look at a particular miracle in a moment, but are the miracles true, or are they legends? Now. Some believe they're legends, but let's talk about that. Now, there are, you're, we're going to be studying the Bible a bit today, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. Uh, or there's a Bible in front of you. There's some paperback versions there, and uh, if you want to turn to one in front of you, we're going to go to page 700 or Luke chapter one. It won't be 700 unless you're in one of those. But let's look at Luke chapter one, and we're asking the question: Are the miracles true, or are they legends? When Luke begins to write about Jesus, he says the following words in Luke chapter 1. He says, many have undertaken, many, not one or two, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about the life of Jesus. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were, what were they? Eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. And servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, the miracles are not legends, because the people writing them said they weren't legends. They said we were eyewitnesses to what we're writing about. Or, in Luke's case, he said, if I didn't see it, I talked to the eyewitnesses. I did an orderly investigation, and these are not legends. I'm telling you what happened, or at least what I saw happen. So they're not legends, nor are they fiction. Now, one of the beauties of technology is that uh, I can be mountain biking up in the San Gabriel Mountains and be listening to a sermon from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Amazing, isn't it? And uh, Tim Teller is a wonderful pastor there, and he was preaching on the question, who is Jesus? And he, he made this same point, that these accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not fiction. Now, why do we know that? We know that because in Jesus' day, there was not, no such thing as fiction like we have fiction. And his point is that the details of the Gospels, when you read these rich stories with lots of details in them telling you about the person... Or the event. As you read these stories with those details, there was no such thing in Jesus' day of that kind of fiction. Today, you may read fiction. In fact, I heard on the radio this morning um, some uh, ad for something, and it was starting off like a mysterious novel. You know, the, the wind was howling through the pines. It was a dark and stormy night when someone rapped on the door, and an old lady peered out from behind the curtain. You know, that we are familiar with that kind of stuff. In Jesus' day, nobody wrote like that in terms of fiction. So we know that these are not meant to be fictitious accounts because there wasn't such a thing in Jesus' day like that. Now, the third thing uh, that I want to say when we ask the question, are the miracle stories true? The miracle stories are not refuted. And this is a huge point if you really care to think seriously. We have a young woman in our church. Her name is Sarah. She's crippled from birth. She cannot walk. Now, many of you know her. She lives at Sophia Lynn up the street on Fair Oaks. Let's say today I announced to you that some of the members of the church and I went to see Sarah. We anointed her with oil. We prayed for healing, and God healed her, and she got up and walked. Now, that would be a pretty big service today, wouldn't it? We could have an amazing celebration. And let's say this happened, and I preached this, and we were just excited, and I, we prayed for others for healing, and uh, you left the church, but you thought, you know... Where is Sarah? And I said, well, she's not here today. She's up in the Bay Area visiting her dad. And so that would be okay for you to hear. But let's suppose days go by or weeks go by or months go by and you still haven't seen Sarah. Now, as much as you may love your pastor, there's going to be a question mark in your head, right? Where's Sarah? Why haven't I seen her walking? Or you could just go up Fair Oaks after the service and say, is Sarah in her bed or not? And if she's not there and they said, did you hear what happened? She walked out of here. That would be pretty good proof even if you hadn't seen Sarah. Or if you saw her walking, that would be the ultimate proof. But if you drove up there and she's in that bed, you'd say, what's the matter with Steve? What is going on here? And you would refute my story. I could say it as much as I wanted, as long as I wanted. I could believe it if I wanted and be very enthusiastic but all you have to do is find out is it true now do you think the people of jesus day were just a lot stupider than you are so that when somebody said there was a blind man healed or a crippled man healed or a leper healed or a woman with an issue of blood she was now healed do you think they just didn't get it you see the reality is if all these were phony they didn't work somebody would have stood up and said this is ridiculous it didn't happen And the majority are going to believe the truth of the matter. And so I want to say again, as we come to the miracles, I believe Jesus did miracles, just like it says. And I believe if he hadn't have done it, people would have refuted it in that day, and we wouldn't be wasting our time talking about these stories today. So that's where I'm coming from. And uh, in the answer to the, are the miracle stories true? Yes, I believe they are. Now, another question, and we're certainly, uh, we could spend a lot of time on this and we won't. But why miracles? And basically, uh, you can look at it in two ways. And this is, again, in your outline. You can ask the question, do the miracles of Jesus, in other words, he was able to do these, therefore he's divine. Do the miracles of Jesus prove his divinity? And some have said, many have said yes. But you can flip it around and actually ask it the other way or state it the other way. Do the miracle, did Jesus do miracles because he is divine? Yes. And if you want to know more about that, you can go off to the scholars at Fuller and talk about it. Let's come to the miracle in Matthew chapter 8. I want to talk to you about um, a story that's told to us in Matthew chapter 8. And I think in your uh, Bible, in your pew, that's on page 664. Uh, let's, Let's turn to this story. One of the choices a person has when they're talking about the miracles is most of the miracles are told in more than one gospel. Matthew tells about this miracle, so does Luke. Some would even suggest John does, although that's debatable. Now, one way of looking at the miracles is you look at the three different versions and you, what we call, harmonize them. You put them together and you say, well, Luke tells us this, Matthew tells us this, here's the end result. It's like two plus two is four. Uh, but another way, and that's fine. That's a good way to look at them. But another way to look at them is to say, you know, Matthew tells this story, and it's different than Luke's story. Now, sometimes people are bothered by that. But here's, here's the point. If uh, you and I were standing outside drinking coffee here in about three hours when the service is over, I studied a lot this week. Um, if we're standing out there on Marengo and there's a car crash, and we're both standing there and see that car crash, and the policemen come by and they ask you about the crash, you're going to tell them what you saw, right? And I'm going to tell them what I saw. And there might be 15 of us telling them what you saw. Do you know what we know about what we all tell them? It's all going to be the same, right? No, there are going to be 15 different stories. We all saw the same thing, but we express it 15 different ways. That's just human nature. When Matthew writes about his story, he's expressing it differently than Luke will. So what I like to do... Is not worry about Luke's story right now, but what does Matthew want us to know? And one of the things Matthew does when he tells stories about Jesus is he's writing to a Jewish Christian group. He wants them to know that this first half of the Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, he wants them to know that the Messiah that's talked about in there is actually the Jesus that's talked about in what became the New Testament. In other words, he has a high Christology, we say. He thinks a lot of Jesus. Of course, all the gospel writers do. But he's not so concerned like Luke is with a lot of details. He just talks about Jesus. And so the, there's a different nuance to the story. So let's, uh, let's begin looking at this um, story that's found in Matthew chapter 8, and it begins in verse 5, and it's called the, uh, well, in the NIV here that we're looking at, the faith of the centurion, the faith of the centurion. I want to come back to the question that we started with. Who is the boss of you? Now, we're going to put this Scripture up on the board uh, or the screen. And the Scripture says this. We're breaking into the story. Let me actually start with verse 5, and we'll come up to this Scripture. We'll just leave the Scripture up there. Uh, It says, Jesus went to Capernaum, and there was a man came to him. And you can read there. The man says, Lord, I have this servant who's struggling. He's suffering. Let me pause here. This is not a message about prayer. But do you, when you pray, do you ever just tell Jesus what's on your heart? You're not asking for anything. Let's say you're having a down day or somebody offended you. Do you ever just say, Lord, uh, so-and-so offended me today. I'm just upset about this. Or, Lord, I'm fearful about the economy. Do you ever talk to God like that? You should. That's the way the centurion talked to Jesus. Now, he came to him for help, but actually we don't have a record of him asking for help. Jesus just hears about this poor servant who's paralyzed and suffering. And Jesus says, and I like the today's uh, New International Version, which puts it in the form of a question. He says, do you want me to make him well? Most translations don't do it that way. Either way works. But Jesus volunteers, should I come and heal him? And then the centurion says this amazing thing. He says to him, uh, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof or into my house. Why would he say that? Well, he's a Gentile. The centurion is probably from Syria. He works for Rome, and he's ruling over the army here that occupies Israel. Now, in this case, we happen to know the centurion was loved by the Jews. He was a good man. Had, this guy had built him a synagogue. And so don't think of an adversarial relationship here. He's a good soldier, and he's loved by the people he uh, rules over and occupies. But why would he say that you don't need to come to my house? Well, one reason is perhaps he realizes as a Jew, a Jew Jesus will defile himself if he comes to a Gentile's house. Do you realize Jesus never went to a Gentile's house? He was never in a Gentile's place? We have no idea of how much racism there was actually present or prejudice in the day of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come for the Gentiles. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, the Gentiles were going to get the gospel, but not directly through Jesus. And so here's this centurion, uh, perhaps a Syrian, definitely a Gentile, and he's before Jesus. And it may be that he was just sensitive to the realities of his day and said, Jesus, you don't have to get defiled and come to my house. I wouldn't even ask that of you. you Then what does he say? Here's the amazing part of the story. Jesus, he said, you know, I'm a man under authority. I boss people around. Rome has given me the authority. I have these soldiers, and I say to that soldier, you go, and he goes. I say to this soldier, you come, and he comes. People obey me. And then he says, if you'll just say the word, and there's so much in the Bible about the word, isn't there? If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. It's like text messaging or something. I mean, it's amazing. You know, you can sit there and text your Google Calendar and set your appointments right here. You don't have to write anything down or go there. You know, it just happens. Send it out into cyberspace and it happens. And he sees that Jesus somehow has this power from God to say to the spirits and to nature, if you'll do this, it'll happen. And so he said, Jesus, I'm a man under authority. If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. It's interesting in Scripture. You have the story of the centurion here, and the boy gets healed. It's interesting, as you look at the last verse here, it just says that uh, the boy was healed. So while it's a miracle story, we don't really know much about the miracle. There's so much else going on here that Matthew wants the church to know. And part of what's going on is this question of who has authority. The centurion sees Jesus as one with great authority from God. Remember, at the end of Matthew, we won't be studying this story, but you remember as Jesus is dying on the cross... Uh, there's a man who says, Surely this man, speaking of Jesus, was a son of God. Who said that? A centurion. a centurion. And when you read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, the first household that was baptized as Christians outside of Judaism was what? It was a centurion's household. So it's, it's interesting to follow that line out, although that takes us down a different road. This centurion says, Jesus, you have authority. Just say the word, and that's enough for me. And it's remarkable. Now, the question is, who's the boss of you? Jesus, later on in Matthew, says this. He says to his 12 men, the 12 apostles, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one master, and you are brothers. If we translated that today, we'd say to this church, You're not to be called rabbi, each of us. We have one master, and we're all sisters and brothers. Now, as we ask who's the boss of you, I'd like to ask again who's the boss of you, who has mastery over you. Let me, give me some grace here with this story. Let's suppose that every day at 7 o'clock, you say, I go to Starbucks and I get my Starbucks. So you spend 5 bucks on that, 35 bucks a week. You say, I just have to do that. Question, does Starbucks have mastery over you at 7 o'clock? Can you not do that? Now, I love coffee, so I don't want to pick on coffee drinkers here, but it does come to the issue of addictions, doesn't it? What has mastery over us? Can't stop smoking? I know that's a a tough battle. It has mastery over you. Can't stop drinking? It has mastery over you. Uh, I love cycling. I got in a great ride yesterday. You do know what's going on, don't you? How long do I have to suffer with this? The Tour of California started yesterday. All the major European riders are here. Lance Armstrong will be in Pasadena a week from yesterday. Uh, all sorts of folks. Anyhow, it started yesterday. And next Saturday, they're going to ride from Santa Clarita over the mountain to Pasadena, then do laps around the Rose Bowl. So my son put together a ride with about 30 of us yesterday. We rode over the mountain, through the snow. It was great. Now, I love cycling. But let's suppose that... Uh, You know, I start missing work because I'm cycling. Let's suppose I just am addicted to it and and my whole life revolves around riding a bike. Now, that's great exercise. It's a great hobby and it can have wonderful results in my life, right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's not sinful. However, if it begins to master me, what's the matter? There's a problem, isn't it? It's really a question of who's boss, who's in control here. And so as we come to this question about the authority of Jesus, uh, who's, who is the boss of you is the question. Paul put it this way. He said, everything is permissible for me. I don't know if he's a liberal or what. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Wow. Jesus was his Lord. Jesus had authority, and Paul did what Jesus said to do. It's that simple. Now, let's go on here. These miracle stories are really quite rich. And the next uh, section that I want to deal with is a warning. This would be a wonderful, sweet story if Jesus had just kept his mouth shut. But he didn't. And he puts this section in here, and it's kind of disturbing. It's really a warning. Uh, Frederick Bruner put it this way, If wooing will not work, try warning. If wooing will not work, if a nice gentle invitation, you know, get on board doesn't work, then maybe we can just scare you to death and you'll get on board. We'll warn you. I don't know if that's what's going on here, but Jesus, you can see the Scripture there. Jesus says, you know what, this is an amazing statement this centurion has said. He grants me the authority to heal his son long distance. I'm just going to text to the end and the guy will be okay. And that does happen. But Jesus uses it as a teaching point to bless those who give him authority and to, I don't want to say curse, but to severely warn those who don't. And as Matthew writes this to his church, he's trying to warn us, you can sit in church all day and you can end up at this great banquet God is preparing for us and be gnashing your teeth because you lived a regrets life. This is all about people with regrets. Some are in, some are out. Who gets in, who gets out? Well, the interesting thing is the, the outsiders get in, and the insiders are out in this story. Um, when you come to the Gospel of Matthew here, uh, Jesus has a portfolio. He has three job assignments, according to Matthew. He's a teacher, he's a preacher, and he's a healer. And he just finished the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So he's been preaching and teaching. It's wonderful. And that's filled with things we're supposed to do. You know, blessed are the merciful, peacemakers, poor in spirit. You know the story. So lots in there to do. Now, Jesus, uh, Matthew likes to use Jesus' miracles as illustrations in his own writing, and so we begin what are ten miracles in chapters eight and nine. And notice how they begin. The first miracle in chapter eight is of a leper. How how far outside was a leper? I'm not sure there was anybody further outside. If you were a leper, you lived outside the city. You couldn't go to temple to worship. If you were a leper, you had to say, I'm, clean, I'm clean, and let people know so they wouldn't come around you if you're a leper. So when Jesus shows up with his power, what does he do? He heals a leper. And the outsider becomes an insider. Second story is about the centurion we're talking about. Now, in Jesus' religious world, there was the, the temple and with its various courts. Gentiles could actually go to worship in the temple. They went to the court of the Gentiles. They had to stay in there. They couldn't go elsewhere, but they could go to the court of Gentiles. And so Jesus heals a centurion, a Gentile. Thirdly, the next story, which we're not dealing with, is Simon Peter's mother-in-law gets healed, so a woman gets healed. She also is an outsider in this economy. There was a court for women in the temple, but she couldn't go into the holy place, and of course she'd never go into the Holy of Holies. So again, it's interesting he starts out with these three healings, all of outsiders, the centurion being one of them. To say it another way, Jesus is trying to help his audience learn from outsiders about God's love. And he says, you know, folks are coming from the east and the west, the north and the south, and they are all coming into the kingdom of God. But you Jews who ought to be there already, you're going to be outside. Now, writing to the church, it's a warning to us. Just because we're Baptists or in church doesn't mean we're necessarily in either, does it? We might be outsiders. It's a warning. Now, one way to put it is you understand that uh, Christianity is exploding in various parts of the world. In Asia, there are, there are areas where Christianity is just growing by leaps and bounds. China is one example as the gospel goes forth. In Latin America, in Africa, the same. Now, here's a question. We're, we're blessed here at First Baptist and in Pasadena to have a lot of diversity, a lot of people coming to Fuller and other places, and we see, we're around a rich variety of Christian people. Now, here's, here's my suspicion. Somebody comes from Africa and they've grown up in a village and gotten some education, but they come here, they don't know how to use the plumbing because they're not used to indoor toilets. And so how do we think about that? We think, well, what's the matter with you? You don't know how to use plumbing? And we think, as Americans, we kind of look down on folks like that, don't we? You come from this with this tribal mentality. And yet, as you meet some of these folks, they have enormous faith in Jesus. It's huge. They set out from from wherever they come from and land here with nothing, just trusting God. What's up with that? Now, do you get where I'm going with this? You see, we got some insiders and outsiders. Could it be that we could learn an awful lot about faith in Jesus and the authority Jesus has from people from all around the world that we meet who have this great faith in Jesus? I think we can. And so there's a warning here for us not to be smug and think that we have such a faith in Jesus when we may end up gnashing our teeth on the outside because we realize uh, we did a lot of religious stuff, but Jesus really had no authority in our lives. So I come to the title of the sermon today. Can Jesus make a difference? Can Jesus make a difference? Well, uh, maybe is how I want to answer that one. Maybe. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, if you still have your Bibles, you might want to turn back one page Maybe it's on the same page, but to the previous chapter, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 7, he, he has some disturbing words. Uh, he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's kind of scary. I prayed to the Lord, but he's not going to let me in anyhow. Then he says, but only those who, What? Do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? Steve, didn't you preach in my name? And in your name did not we cast out demons? And in your name did not we do many miracles? Yet, I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, evildoers. Wow, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? So, can Jesus make a difference? Well, let me tell you a a poor illustration here, but I think it gets to the point. There was a a couple, married couple, and this poor man was wasting away. He was getting weaker. He was getting thinner. His color was gone. Finally, he and his wife went to the doctor, and the doctor ran some tests and said, Well, let's figure this out. So they came back to the doctor after all the tests, and the doctor said, Come on in, brought him into the office. And he said, well, I've sort of got good news and bad news. It does look like you're dying. That's the bad news. You're wasting away. You're emaciated. Your color's bad. Uh, it's bad. But he said, I also need to talk to just your wife. So, sir, if you don't mind waiting out in the waiting room, uh, I'd like to spend a moment with your wife and then she'll come out. And the guy said, that's fine. And he shuffles off, you know, like Casper Milk Toast and uh, waits. In the doctor's office... The doctor looked into the eyes of the woman and he said, You know, ma'am, the good news is all the medical tests come back good. The guy's heart is good. He doesn't have cancer. His lungs are good. He, he seems to be physically okay, but I think he's dying for lack of love. He's just wasting away. And I suggest that you start pouring out your affection on him. You need to love this man. Cook good meals for him. Be with him. Just do whatever you can to really love this guy. And he said, if if you don't really reach out and improve the way you're living together and love him and love him with all your heart and soul, uh, I think he's going to die. But if you really are devoted to him, I think he can live. And he said, do you understand me? Am I clear? And he, she said, yes, I understand. So she got up, left the doctor's office, went out of the waiting room. Her husband looks up and he said, well, what did the doctor say? And she said, well, the doctor said you're going to die. Well, I debated about telling that story, but it does make an interesting point, I think. And it's really a point about obedience, isn't it? I started out asking you, who's the boss of you? Are you going to do what the pastor said? Are you going to do what the preacher said? Are you going to do what the plumber said? Are you going to do what the policeman said? No, because you're your own person. You're the boss of you, right? Uh Uh-huh. What about what Jesus says? Are you going to do what Jesus said? Because Jesus actually said, this is not Steve making something up. You can read it in, in Matthew 7, 21 and following. Jesus said, a lot of people say, Lord, Lord, but they don't what? Do the things that I say. That's the issue. Just like the woman wasn't about to do what he, her husband needed. And Jesus said, you're going to be on the outside. That's the way it's going to be. You're going to die in your sins because you didn't do what I said. So, I, can Jesus make a difference? The centurion believed Jesus could make a difference. And according to the scripture, that made all the difference in the world. His faith made the difference. Read the end of the story. Do you believe Jesus can make a difference? If you say yes, my faith is in Jesus, I trust his word. When Jesus says to come to him for rest, that's what I do. When my soul is upset, I cast my cares on Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and tired and worn out, and I'll give you rest. And those of us who believe that word and come to Jesus find rest. He makes a difference. But others say, well, that doesn't work. I think Jesus is Lord, but I'm not going to come to him with all my stuff. And so in those cases, Jesus doesn't make any difference in your life. Yes, Jesus can make a difference, but only if you have faith in his authority. Or, no, he does not make a difference because you do not know His power, because you do not trust Him to change you and make a difference in your life. You have a choice. So is who's the boss of you? Who is the boss of you? Someone wrote, The Lord we worship is almost inordinately ready to meet our needs. Jesus wants to help you. But you have to have the faith to reach out to Him and give Him permission to help, to say, Yes, Lord. The song says, Just The old song says, you just call out my name and I'll come running. Wherever you are, you've got a friend. You remember the old, what, James Taylor song? Yeah. That's what Jesus is saying. I want to help. Just call out my name. But you have to have the faith that I'm actually going to help you. And I will. So that's the message this morning on this first miracle. I don't think it's just about this little boy being healed. It's really a larger story about does Jesus have the authority to heal you and me in our lives? Who's the boss of you? I've written a little prayer. I call it a miracle prayer. And if you'd like to pray this prayer, I'm going to ask us to pray it together. But if you really don't believe or you're not ready to pray this prayer, then I'd say uh, not pray it. Just listen to as we pray. It's a prayer that says, Lord, you're the boss of me. And so if you would, pray with me. Lord, I do believe that you have all authority over me. I do know I have not always lived under your authority. What servants of mine, what concerns or burdens do I carry that might be healed at your word if I simply believed you had authority? Lord, in this sacred moment, with your people as my witnesses, I declare you have all authority over me because you are the living Son of God. I trust you and your word. And I commit to doing what you say. Hallelujah. Praise God. And amen. Let's just have a moment of silence as we continue to worship. Lord, we remember that famous statement by Jesus, just as he left this earth to go home to heaven. Jesus, you declared all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded. Father, we want to live under your authority. Forgive us for when we've taken the reins of our life and been our own boss. Forgive us for when we've allowed demons to come in and addictions to come in to boss us around. Help us to live by your power. Help us not to be mastered by anything except that Jesus is Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that even a mustard seed of faith can make a huge difference. And I pray for that faith to be born in each heart here today. In Jesus' name, amen.